0: Welcome to episode 134 of the Garden DC podcast. In this episode, we talk with Sam Hoadley of Mount Cuba Center, all about Carex for the Mid-Atlantic region. The plant profile is on pink muley grass, and we share what's going on in the garden, as well as some upcoming local gardening events in the What's New segment. We close out with Dr. Alan Armitage, who shares the last word on common sense gardening. This episode, we're joined by Sam Hoadley. He is the Manager of Horticultural Research at Mount Cuba. Welcome, Sam.
1: Thank you, Kathy. Thanks so much for having me.
0: Thank you for joining us. And Sam, we previously had two Mount Cuba co-workers on the Garden DC podcast, and that was Amy Hyland talking about trilliums and George Coombs talking about the garden flocks trials that you had put on. Uh, a couple years ago and today we're going to be talking to you all about the very brand new and i'm like smelling the report right now sam <laughs> yep. a fresh fresh ink off the printing press of the carex for the mid-atlantic region a report that you all just put out
1: that's fabulous yeah no it's um it is just we just released it um uh on the website on the 17th so brand new
0: Great. Yeah. Before we go into all things Carex, uh, we like to ask on the Garden DC podcast, were you born with a green thumb, Sam, and chlorophyll in your veins, or did horticulture come later in life?
1: Um, Horticulture, um, at least being outdoors, was always kind of part of my life. Um, I grew up in north central Connecticut um, in kind of a woodland area, and the woods were really my playground growing up. Um, and I think that early exposure to being outside, um, that early love of nature that was instilled in me um, really kind of stuck with me forever. And I was I think one of those rare cases of a, of someone who really knew that, uh, you know, what they wanted to do very early in life. Um, and, um, you know, my college search, um, I did that search with that desire in mind to be working with plants um, and eventually went to University of Vermont. Um, where I got my sustainable landscape horticulture degree um, and then continued my horticulture um, career at Longwood Gardens before coming to Mount Cuba Center.
0: And now you're settled down here in the Mid-Atlantic.
1: Yep, exactly.
0: And so for your home garden, we'll ask you a little bit about what that looks like and what you like to grow.
1: Sure. Um, So my home garden is very wild, um, very naturalistic. But it's a lot of fun and it's really um, designed with wildlife in mind. Um, So, our research reports, and I'll kind of reference them a little bit here, um, we kind of talk about two different perspectives when we're evaluating native plants. And I will say that my home garden is mostly native, although not entirely. I'd say probably like 90% native, 10% not. Um, And we look at them from the perspectives of beauty you know, is it a good garden plant? Will it be a, you know, a beautiful addition to your home landscape. And then the value part of that, um, which is, you know, with these plants, be able to support wildlife in your home landscape. And that's the part for me that I pay attention to. So even looking at these reports, I'm paying attention to those plants that are supporting the most insects. We're seeing the most activity on them in the trials. And those are the ones I want to plant at home Um, because really my goal is to support as much wildlife as I possibly can um, where I live. And it's so much fun to, you know, to see your garden being utilized by birds, by butterflies, by bees. Um, it's the, probably, to me, the most rewarding part of gardening.
0: And by gardening for wildlife, I think you're meaning not the ones on four legs that, <laughs> uh, that answer to the name of Bambi.
1: Yes, um, although they'll, they come in there sometimes and it's just one of those... One of those things that happens but um yeah but the primary focus for me is is native insects native birds um, as much as possible to you know supporting them even in just a home landscape
0: hmm. and for those listeners who didn't listen to the prior to mount cuba episodes um, we should probably define where mount cuba is and talk a little bit about its mission
1: yes absolutely so so mount cuba is located in northern delaware and hokesson um, and we were the former estate of the DuPont-Copeland family, um, who were originally from Litchfield, Connecticut and moved down um, to this area um, when uh, Mr. J- um, Copeland was working for DuPont. Um, and they chose Mount Cuba Center because it, it looked a lot like Litchfield. It reminded them of, um, of their former home. Um, and they settled here and um, really went about building this home, building this garden, and kind of what used to be a fallow cornfield. Um, So everything, if you come here, a lot of this was planted and designed with intention, um, but in a naturalistic way. Um, And as this garden was developing, as the Copelands were building and working on this site, um, they really kind of started thinking about the future of Mount Cuba Center and realized that they really wanted it to be a place that could be open to the public someday. And um, this is Copeland's um, kind of put her intention into words when she said that I want Mount Cuba to be a place where people will be inspired by the beauty and value of native plants and hopefully want to become conservators themselves. Um, And those words kind of live on today as our mission. Everything we do at Mount Cuba Center ties back to that. As I mentioned in the Trial Gardens, um, we focus on both the beauty and value of native plants in the Trial Garden, the beauty being their horticultural values, their ornamental values and their value um, of native plants we interpret as their wildlife value so could these plants support wildlife and that really those kind of two pieces of that mission tie back to everything we do and we want people to when they come here to be inspired and want to become conservators themselves and part of the way you can do that is by planting native plants in your home landscape Um, but mount cuba center um, recently opened we opened to the public i believe in 2013 so relatively new in um, the public garden world Um, but we are a very much a conservation focused organization um, focusing on native plants in the eastern United States.
0: Hmm. And I should also point out that Mount in Mount Cuba's name is relative. Um, so it's basically a large hill.
1: Yeah. And for Delaware, it's a big hill, but yes.
0: Was... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and don't think that you're going to have to do too strenuous of a walking around the property. Right. It's gentle, gentle. Exactly. Hmm. And um, speaking of the mission, uh, you do have a good deer fence around you um, and a great staff. And every year you come out with a new trial report on a different um, native species. And so for this year's Carex trials, I was looking at it and it says you have 70 different carex that were trialed including some cultivars but mainly the straight native species
1: correct yes um so so all of our trials kind of i'll say they have different flavors so with carex um it was a very species heavy trial if you look at if you look back at some of our older trials um some of them are very cultivar heavy so for like um, echinacea for example or cone flowers, it was a Primarily cultivars that were being evaluated. I think we had seventy some um, cone flowers, and I think only seven or eight of them were, you know, the straight species, if you will. It's very much flipped with the Carrick's trial. Most of these are the the wild type native species. Only a couple of cultivars, and those cultivars are, um, I believe, for the most part, if not all, just simple selections. So these are natural variations that were selected in the wild. Hasn't been a lot of complex breeding with this trial. And we're essentially just taking these 70 plants and seeing how they perform in common garden um, conditions and what we consider to be average garden soils in both shade and full sun. So we had all 70 plants in both conditions to kind of test their tolerances.
0: Hmm. And that's a good point about that they're selected cultivars and um, not bred and they're not crossed with, say, some of the Asian Carex or others. And so also all of these won't be available to all home gardeners and that's kind of a difference I think from some of the previous trial reports I'd read like the echinacea you pointed out where most of those were available in the trade, Um, a lot of these might be hard to source.
1: Some of them may be hard to source, um, but the the majority of the top performers, um, which ended up being 16 of the 70 different Carex um, that we featured in our research report, the majority of those 16 are either somewhat commercially available or readily commercially available. You will, if you look for them, you should be able to find them. Um, and a few of them we're hoping will become more available um, as time goes on. There was a couple of species. Um, one I'll probably mention later on is Carex woody eye. It's out there commercially, but um, a really it's one that I think is really going to catch on and you're going to see show up more and more commercially because it's, it's such a great garden plant, um, at least From what we saw in the trials. Um, So there are a few that I think will become more available going forward, and it's true there are a handful of species that um, are scarcely commercially available um, if, I mean, if commercially available at all that were not necessarily top performers, Um, but um, it's possible that those two may end up in cultivation someday.
0: And I think your report plays an important role in actually creating that market. So if I open that up and, you know, read great things about one certain Carex and go to my local garden center and ask for it, that's going to pass down the line to the growers and create that market for it.
1: Right. And those really, those are the two big target audiences for us. It's it's homeowners and it's the nursery industry. Um, You kind of can't have one without the other. And we really want to help both the nurseries and homeowners make good informed decisions and have success when gardening with native plants. Um, We want people to you know, to do well with natives, so then they'll want to plant more natives and more natives in their home landscape, um, you know, and continue in that with that conservation at home kind of model.
0: The physical setup of the trial itself, I came and visited this um, in July. It was a hot day, but it was still a nice day (laughs) (laughs) to come come and see the Carex. Um, I definitely appreciate the shade side of the things, which is a giant shade cloth. (laughs) Um, And then you have the full sun side of things. And are you using supplemental water? You said you're using basically average home conditions.
1: Yeah, we we try to give these, um, I don't want to use the word neglect, but we give, we, we have very, very little input in the trials after that first year. So this the trial was actually five years. We were collecting um, data for um, regular garden data for three of those years and then a mowing trial that last year. But the first year when that when those trials are put in the ground, we may supplementally water when needed um, and even that sparingly Um, just when we might have dry periods we will give them a little bit of extra water. But there's no irrigation in the trial garden. It's just all hand watering. Um, after that first year, those plants are on their own. Um, we don't supplementally water. We don't fertilize. We want to see what these plants will do with very, very limited inputs. So again, people will have similar results with similar low inputs in their home landscape.
0: And the public is able to access those trials all during those five years and walk amongst it and be able to see for themselves, you know, after a third year, maybe coming back and visit. And I'm like, oh, I've had my eye on that Carex and it's looking really good in shade, but not so hot in sun. So. You know, you could almost do your own little trial on the side.
1: Exactly. I think that's one of the really special things about the trial garden at Mount Cuba Center is you can interact with these plants and you can see them in progress and you can make your decisions about you know which plants do I want to have in my home landscape even before the trial reports are put out if you have access and you you know you are coming to Mount Cuba Center reg- relatively regularly. But the trial garden really is just this place for learning and interpretation. Um, not just for the public, but for us as well. Um, that's one of the things I enjoy so much about this job is that we're constantly learning, we're constantly observing these plants and kind of evaluating how they would do, again, in common garden conditions.
0: Let's talk about the carex in particular and first define carex. So it's a grass-like perennial yes. um, is the first description of it. And you do a great job with the photos in the report of showing the difference between um, carex interior rushes and grasses but we'll try to describe that for the listeners
1: sure yeah so carex are um interestingly they are all um, perennial plants and they are grass-like and when i say interestingly all perennial um, a lot of other plant families um carex are in the Cyperaceae plant family a lot of them have um different habits, if you will. So there, if you think about grasses you have, or different life cycles, if you will. So if you have grasses, there are annual grasses, um, think stilt grass. You have your perennial grasses, um, think like andropogon. Um, And then you have your woody grasses, think like some of your bamboo. Um, All Carex, despite the size of this genus, which is considerable, despite the diversity of habitats that it's found and the fact that they can be found all over the world, they are all perennial plants. Um, so no annuals, no woody plants in the Carex family. Um, and Carex are um, kind of lumped under a larger umbrella of what is commonly referred to as sedges. So um, sedges are kind of, again, an umbrella term that encompass the genus Carex, as well as some other closely related genus, such as Cyperus and Eliocaris, a handful of others. Um, but so all Carex are sedges, but not all sedges are Carex. Carex is certainly the largest genus within the sedge family. Um, And it can take a little bit of practice kind of teasing out which one, if once you have a sedge, you know, is this a carex or not? Um, But sedges do look somewhat similar to, as you mentioned, to rushes and grasses, both grass-like perennials, and in case of the grasses, they are grasses. Um, But sedges, one of the easy ways that you can kind of determine whether you're looking at a sedge, a rush, or a grass Um, is through this pretty simple rhyme um, that is a good kind of reminder of some of the key differences between these these three families. So with sedges, you might hear this rhyme, sedges have edges, rushes are round, and grasses are hollow from their tips to the ground, or grasses have nodes from their tip to the ground. Um, So sedges do have edges, they have triangular solid stems um, when they're cut open. Um, Rushes have um, round stems, but they tend to be Um, filled with a spongy pith, so they are solid as well, but round. Um, And then grasses tend to be a round stem, but they are hollow inside. And grasses also do have these kind of swollen jointed nodes as well. Carex do have nodes, um, but they are much more subtle. It's more of kind of a line that you would look for instead of kind of the swollen joint. Um, So those kind of key differences are great ways to, at a very basic level, understand the differences between these three um, visually similar plant families.
0: I love that little rhyme it does help yes (laughs) and so carex um usually low growing kind of mounding and we'll go into some of those characteristics in a little bit and the flower isn't you know as ornamental I would say as ornamental grass in general and what what do you think of the flower Sam
1: Some of them, I I will say that that is true in most cases. Um, Carex are not generally known for ornamental flowers, although there are some um, that are really beautiful. And I think a handful that are worth growing for their flowers alone. Um, The thing about Carex flowers is they tend to be fairly short-lived. So this is just maybe kind of a week or two that the flowers um, kind of are giving you that ornamental display. Um, I think the seeds from Carex are actually the really most ornamental part um, of these plants besides their foliage, which is what you really want to grow them for. Um, the fruit can last a lot longer. They have these beautiful shapes and structures, which I think add a, a lot of interest to a lot of these different species. Um, and um, and yeah, th- I mean, but some carex flowers really are beautiful. Like there's a handful of our top performers, carex woody which is one I will continue to mention, has beautiful carpets of kind of these straw-colored flowers in early spring, a great complement to other um, early flowering perennials. Um, definitely for that species, it's worth growing for the flowers alone. But a lot of the flowers for Carex are fairly nondescript. Mm-hmm. Um, and in our rating process, um, we generally weren't awarding extra points for showy flowers. We kind of thought of them as a bonus. We were really focused in on the vigor of the plants, on the foliage quality, those kinds of things that are really what you're growing these plants are for for the majority of the growing season
0: yeah i was contrasting that to some of your wildflower trials where you would be I... rating you know the color and the look of the flowers its floriferousness and also how many pollinators visited those flowers per day and right what pollinators were so this is a very different trial
1: yes it was unique in a few ways and and you did hit on a very important point there um, so with this trial we were really able to pretty clearly evaluate you know the the health the vigor, the beauty of these different plants um, in the trials, Um, but we were kind of, um, it was difficult to categorize the value, if you will, of these plants. So as you mentioned, with some of our previous trials, such as Echinacea and Hydrangea, um, it was easy to kind of watch those plants and record their pollinator visits. Our pollinator watch team, uh, volunteer team, um, collects a lot of that data for us, and it gives us a pretty decent idea about which ones, which of these plants is able to attract and in theory, support the most insects in a home garden situation um, with carex, because they're when pollinated, you generally they're not going to be offering that same um, value and attracting um, pollinators like, say, an echinacea or a hydrangea would be. But that doesn't mean that they don't have ecological value. Um, they are host plants. So there are insects that feed on their foliage. Um, Birds and small mammals eat their seeds. The plants themselves can act as habitat, but it's a little bit more difficult to um, measure that. So a lot of um, what we were seeing in the trial garden, we were seeing these plants utilized in that way, but it was a little bit more of an anecdotal um, point of view rather than like a scientific process. We were collecting data on that.
0: One of the most valuable parts of the report, to me at least, um, was the section on carex underground and comparing those carex that are clumpers versus those that spread by rhizomes or root.
1: Yes. Um, yeah, and they kind of are, like, at least in our trial, they broke out into those two kind of major categories, your lumper, your clumpers and your spreaders. Um, and the vast majority of carex in the trial were clump forming. Um, So in that case, you're going to plant them. They're not going to really overrun the bounds of where they're intended to be. Um, And they're going to make these beautiful kind of, you know, mounds, depending on the species, it'll change in the size and texture and so on. Um, But there were a handful of species that do spread by underground rhizomes. And most of them were fairly gently spreading. Um, so Carex pennsylvanica and Carex woodyi come to mind. They're low-growing plants. I kind of think of them as kind of your base layer to your, to your garden. They can kind of fill in gaps between other perennials. They're not going to overwhelm or outcompete other plants. Um, but on the other hand, we had a couple of species, Carex amorii and Carex trichocarpa, that spread rapidly by rhizomes, very, very quickly. Um, rather aggressive plants. That in the right situation, so um, typically for those species, sunny areas with at least some decent moisture in the soil, um, they can overrun a small garden bed really quickly um, and it can be hard to control. So for a small home landscape, maybe not the right choice for smaller garden beds, but that doesn't mean those plants are without merit. Um, If you have kind of a sunny meadow that you want colonized quickly or if you need to stabilize a wet bank, um, these would be great species to utilize. So it really is about making informed decisions, right plant, right place. Um, there's no bad Carrick species. It's just about where you may want to use them in your landscape.
0: Yeah. And that's a great point about um, the wet feet or the dry, and you categorize them as well with uh, dry shade lovers or sun, uh, or they, they can take wet. But also when you're talking about fast spreading, um, I do want to set some expectations in our listeners because these are still plants. <laughs> and <Yeah. laughs> it's not like going to grow, you know, 20 feet in one year right. type of thing.
1: Yep. It won't it won't go 20, but it might go two to three. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, yep. yep. And that's, again, once established, like exactly. after the first couple of years. So first couple of years, we got, you know, your creep, sleep, leap cycle. Exactly. Um, and then it might, st- in ideal conditions, start to take over an area.
1: Yeah. And this is really just, we only saw that with two of the species out of the 70 that we evaluated. Most species were, um, I guess you could call them well-behaved in cultivation.
0: And almost You want them to spread more, some of those clumpers, um, because you're like, oh, I would really like to have a nice patch of this, but it's (laughs) takes so long to fill in, and they're not inexpensive plants. You know, if if you're not buying them by a plug, if you're buying a quart-sized or large or a gallon-sized pot at a garden center, um, and you get a grouping of three, and then after maybe five years, you could double that size in some of the clumpers. Right. Right.
1: Yeah. I mean, you can increase them through division um, and good times to do that is in spring and fall. Um, you can kind of split the plants up and increase them that way. Um, and seed is also a viable option, although Carrick seed do need a cold treatment um, for the most part. Um, and some carrots are a little bit unique that way um, as far as what their germination requirements are. Um, but you can increase them at home um, on your own, but it does tend to be a little bit slow. Um and you're, you're not wrong. Some of the larger plants are not inexpensive, but um, if you can find them um, grown in flats, that's a really great economical way to add a lot of carrots to your home landscape.
0: Yeah, I hadn't thought about starting from seed, Sam. That is a good thought. Maybe I'll experiment this year with collecting some seed and, and see how that goes for me.
1: Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great way um, to grow a lot of carrots, um, you know, relatively quickly. Um, one of the best resources that I've found just for Um, germination requirements, and availability for carex seed is uh, Prairie Moon Nursery. They do a great job, a lot of good information on carex, amongst other many different wildflowers.
0: Prairie Moon Nursery, very easy to access them online, and so our listeners can check that out for seed tips for them, and also purchase seed, I assume.
1: Yes, exactly. Mm -hmm.
0: All right, so let's talk about some of those top performers in your study, and you've already alluded to the wood sedge, Carex woodii, which seems to be like, I'm going to say head and shoulders above the other, Sam. It's like checking all the boxes, right?
1: It really is. It was such a great species, um, and I know many people are um, likely familiar with Carex pennsylvanica, which is also, it's a very popular, um, and rightly so, uh, very popular Carex. Um, it's a, you know, but both of these plants kind of do similar things. I think that um, Carex woodyi just does all those things just a little bit better. Um, it's actually quite good at suppressing weeds with Carex pennsylvanica. Um, you would always kind of have gaps in between um, those mat in that mat of foliage, and there would always be kind of, you know, seedlings germinating in there. Um, with Carex woodyi, it just creates a much more solid mat of foliage that is better at suppressing um, unwanted weed germination Um, And I mentioned before that the flowers are stunning on this plant. It's not the only reason to grow Carex Woodyeye, but it's a great reason to grow it. Um, It's a great companion for for other woodland plants, for other spring uh, blooming blooming plants. Um, And another thing that was great about it is it did pretty much equally well in sun and shade. Maybe slightly better performance in shade, but it's one of those plants that you can plant in both sun and shade. If you have a sunny bed next to a shady bed... You can use Carrick's woody eye as kind of like this unifying planting to kind of tie those two landscapes together um, in your home garden. Um, it really is just, I think, a superior plant. It should be grown more. Um, this is one that is somewhat available now that I'm really hoping will catch on in the nursery industry in the coming years.
0: That's such a good point about those transition spaces, either you know a shadow of a tree or a, a nearby building, and yeah. then you go from full sun to full shade abruptly. So that, that's great that it... it is successful in both those situations. And when you mentioned the Pennsylvania Sedge, uh, Pennsylvanica, I thought that would be number one, Sam. And that's the one I've been touting for ground covers in my ground cover uh, book and talks all the time so you have changed my mind and i'm gonna
1: gonna
0: proselytize for woody eye and you know in hand in hand if you can't get that one you know get pennsylvanica
1: yeah and pennsylvanica is of course it's a great plant it's it's a proven plant um and we actually evaluated a a cultivar of pennsylvanica as well called straw hat um which was introduced by brent horvath of intrinsic perennial gardens in um, hebron illinois um but a really interesting um uh, clonal uh, selection of this of Carex Pennsylvanica. Um, those familiar with Pennsylvanica will know that it doesn't have the showiest flowers. They tend to be per, uh, fairly nondescript, but Straw Hat had, has beautiful flowers, kind of similar to Carex Woodyeye in a lot of ways, those kind of beautiful straw colored flowers that'll be born above the foliage. Um, in late April, early May. Um, not as fast to spread as regular Carrick's Pennsylvanica, but an interesting plant to add to the home landscape as well. But I will always promote Carrick's Pennsylvanica. I just think that Carrick's woody eye um, is, you know, an, either as good or better um, than Pennsylvanica in a lot of the settings that Pennsylvanica is used in.
0: So woody eye, the common name, wood sedge, and the Latin name tend to make you think it would be something you would find as an understory plant in our native woodlands is that where it's mostly uh native to
1: yes i believe it's it's native to um somewhat dry open woodlands um well drained um, but i believe woods actually is a reference to um a, a name
0: a name okay
1: but um it is native to, i believe it is native to um kind of uh high open woodlands in the eastern u.s
0: all right. So our, your next two top selections, let's maybe contrast and compare them. So we have the Cherokee sedge and the common broom sedge.
1: Yeah. Um, so both fabulous species. These would be our number two and three performers. Um, Carex Cherokeeensis is an absolutely wonderful plant. Um, very different from both Carex woodyi and Carex bromoides. Um, it's it's just kind of a larger species um, and it has a real gravity in the garden. Um, it can be a focal point, you can use it in mass. Um, and one of the really kind of nice features of this plant is it is as close to evergreen as we got in the Carex trial of our native Carex. Um, it kind of holds that dark green emerald foliage for a very long period of time, only in kind of late winter do you start seeing any bronzing at the tips of that foliage. But I think if you were to plant Carex Cherokeeensis in a really protected shaded spot over the winter, you might not even see that. Um, but it's a graceful plant. Um, It's beautiful, has tons of utility, can be grown in full sun as well as shade. Um, It's just a spectacular plant. Um, The only issue that we ever had with Cherokeeensis is that because it is so evergreen, it does provide cover for wildlife in the winter, and normally that's a great thing that we would really promote and be excited about, but in some cases that wildlife was voles. And they like to eat the crowns of the Carex Chericheensis in particular, I think really just because it was providing that cover and they could kind of go underneath that plant without being seen by predators. Um, I will say they would cause damage to Carex crowns, but they rarely killed them. And often the next growing season, the the Carex would recover. But they would have kind of an awkward period in the spring as they were kind of growing out of some of that winter damage. So just something to keep in mind and consider um, if you do have vole activity in your home landscape like I do. Um, And then Carex Bromoides Another great plant, um, another clump former, just like Carex Cherokeeensis, but a little bit more of a, uh, a little bit of a smaller plant, it has really beautiful flowing foliage. Um, if you are familiar with uh, prairie drop seeds, so Sporobolus heterolepsis, it looks a lot like that plant. But to me, Carex Bromoides is kind of like a Sporobolus that you can grow in both shade and sun. Um, this is a really, really great plant for average to even wet soils. Um, particularly in shade. But again, we showed that it can be, it's fairly adaptable to sun as well, Um, but a great foliage plant. Flowers on that one aren't as spectacular as others, but really it's that foliage that you want to grow really Bromoides and Cherokeeensis for.
0: That's a great point that you brought up about the evergreen sedges creating wildlife habitat um, and protection, which is, you know, you said good and bad and so getting back to woody eye that's described as a semi-evergreen does that mean it turns brown at the edges during the winter or in a harsh winter you would see a lot of foliage damage
1: yeah you tend to see um even at this time of year a lot of that foliage is kind of browned um, which isn't a bad thing at all and essentially all that what it requires is just a slight cut back in late winter but you likely don't even have to do that um it was just kind of a simple um basic treatment that we provided for the entire Carrick's trial um, each late winter or early spring we'd give them kind of a cut back um, just to clean them up a little bit but a lot of these carrots really don't need it and with Carrick's chair in particular um, I would recommend against cutting back that plant um, too heavily. Um, I think cleaning up those brown tips is totally fine. But if you cut that plant back really hard, Carex Cherokeeensis is very slow to push new foliage in the spring. So it has a kind of a long period of time where it's going to kind of look like this awkward cut back ball of foliage. Um, but just cutting back those tips and cleaning them up, if, if you'd like to do that, if you'd like to have kind of a tidy garden, I think that's totally fine. But um, Carex Cherokeeensis and another species, Carex plantaginea Um, are both kind of slow to respond in spring to a cutback. So it's best to just kind of give them a minimal treatment. But with a lot of these more semi-evergreen plants, um, cutting them back even halfway to two-thirds is a great way to kind of refresh them in the spring and kind of encourage some of that new growth to come through uh, more quickly or at least more visibly.
0: Great maintenance tips. And since you did bring up Plantagiana, the plantain leaf sedge, is that also the one that's marketed as seersucker sedge or is that a different sedge?
1: Yep, that's the same one. It's a great plant and it is commercially available. Um, I, I love that kind of pleated foliage. It's one of those carrots that you can see it in just the foliage and know exactly what you're looking at. Very recognizable. Very, it's a great plant for covering ground. Um, We use it. There are several beds at Mount Cuba Center that are planted with just Carex plantaginea, and they are spectacular. Um, It's another plant that is as close to evergreen as you can get in our native sedges in the trial. Um, And if you protected it from a little from winter sun um, in your home landscape, I think it would be as very very darn close to evergreen as well.
0: I do love that one, Sam. And that one almost has a chartreuse look sometimes, depending yeah. on how much sun it gets. Yeah. Um, and yeah, that puckered foliage. I mean, carrots are already fairly deer resistant, but I tend to think this one is even more because of that texture.
1: It's certainly possible. Um, and I think always deer resistance is, is relative, um, depending on... Um, how much food is available for those deer and how hungry they are. but Carricks, it's it's one of the great features of Carricks is um, they are in general very resistant to um, to deer and other mammalian herbivores.
0: And in that trial for the plantain leaf sage, you say the sun rating did not complete trial. Does that mean it burnt out in the sun?
1: Yeah, it just burnt out and didn't survive. Um, And there were a few cases of that. Um, In particular, we saw that in full sun with a few species where they just couldn't handle the full sun. But they did really well in shade. Um, So Carex plantagenia is kind of probably the most extreme example of that. Where we had a top performer in shade, but a plant that didn't survive in full sun. And I should mention to re- to achieve a top performer status in this trial, you had to get to a score of four point two out of five or better in sun, shade, or both. Um, so it didn't have to be um, you didn't have to do it in both conditions, just one of them. But most of these plants, or I shouldn't say most, but many of the Carex in the top performers list. Did perform at a 4.2 or higher in both sun and shade.
0: Yeah, I'm not surprised about that because my seersucker sedges definitely in a part shade to part sun situation and they can get a little crispy on the edge if it's, you know, hitting the afternoon sun.
1: For sure, for sure. Morning sun is great. I think once you start getting to that midday and afternoon sun, you really kind of want to have that. In um, some kind of protection during those hours of the day.
0: So our next top performer choice is categorized as large. Maybe we can talk a little bit about the sizes of Carex. So you kind of have like the ground-hugging little mop heads, um, and what would you categorize as a medium to a large?
1: Yeah. So so small to me um, is like kind of like a foot and under um, is at least in height. Um, medium would kind of be in that range of one to two feet somewhere in there and height. Um, and then large would be maybe two to three feet and more. Um, and I mean, depending on kind of spread and all things like that considered, those were our general size categories that we gave. Um, so for Carex Haydenii, definitely a larger species, much more upright, kind of reminds me of a, a Miscanthus um, in a lot of ways It kind of has that very upright fountain type of shape. Um, very beautiful plant. Another one that did well in sun and shade. Um, And this is one that I think is worth growing for the flowers alone. They are truly spectacular. I I think I wrote in the description, it looks like sprays of white and brown pipe cleaners that are kind of erupting over the foliage. Um, It's really spectacular. Um, And then for the rest of the year in both sun and shade, the, the foliage looks great. It's really a worthwhile plant. Um could be used successfully in a perennial border, in a rain garden. There's a lot of uses for Carex haidenii. Um And if you like that look of Carex Haydenii, but you want a slightly smaller plant, Carex Stricta, which is the next top performer, does very similar things, just in a slightly smaller package.
0: And I was just looking, because they're both clumpers, Yes. they do look like they would meld pretty well in perennial borders and not take over. And kind of yes. that space where you'd have ornamental grass, but you might have deer issues. Exactly.
1: Yeah, and these are both deciduous species. Um, they behave fairly similar, similarly. They occur in fairly similar habitats, kind of these wet, sunny areas um, in the wild. Um, but they're both very worthy additions to home landscapes.
0: You're next to, you know, they're, they're getting into the medium level here. For top performers, yep. but we have Emery sage and long beaked sage, and I love that name, long beaked sage. That's,
1: uh, yes, um, yeah. So, so Carex or Emory sage. Um, this is one of those Carex that spreads very quickly. Um, so, Carex amoria and Carex trichocarpa, um, in proper conditions, and those conditions would be sunny, kind of moist soils. Um, they can spread rapidly in a home landscape. So, this is one that you kind of want to think about where you might want to cite it but it covers ground really well in the right situation. This could be a really, really good plant to use. Um, It has really beautiful kind of blue green foliage. Flowers are sparse. Um, In theory, it's doing a lot of its propagate or a lot of its spreading by just rhizomes and vegetative means. Um, So it's not producing as many seeds as some of the other species. Um, It's a great plant. Again, just use um, with that knowledge in mind that it is going to spread. Um, Carex bronglei very similar to um, to Carex cherokeeensis. Uh, actually, they come from the same um, same section. Um, and one of the things that I love about this plant is that uh, the flowers and fruit it really does look like heads of wheat. Um, it's very attractive. Offers kind of an interesting texture. Offers movement to the landscape. Unfortunately, um, and this is true of many sedges. After those flowers are have finished blooming, they tend to flop over. But that flop, as those plants kind of flatten out, um, new foliage quickly is produced and kind of covers that up. So it's only a couple weeks where you kind of have this awkward period in the the garden. But likely, if this plant were surrounded by other perennials, that flop wouldn't be as severe and you wouldn't notice it as much in a home landscape. Um, But definitely worth growing for those flowers. For the remainder of the summer and fall, it's just these beautiful mounds. Of this kind of medium green foliage. Um, Very similar to Carex Cherokeeensis, just a slightly lighter shade of green and a slightly smaller plant.
0: And then that brings us to Carex Pennsylvanica, which we had discussed uh, a bit before and that you had trialed both the straight species and the straw hat cultivar.
1: Yep. And again, both great plants, totally worthy garden additions. Carex Pennsylvanica is very available Um, straw hat is a great plant if you can track it down definitely worth adding to your home landscape especially if you have a smaller kind of vignette where you can appreciate those um really showy flowers um they're both great plants i love using Carex pennsylvanica and, and we use it extensively at mount cuba center to kind of mix through other woodland perennials in particular um, and there's actually a planting of Carex pennsylvanica in the trial garden that's mixed with oxalis violacea um, and it's just this beautiful planting, just in completely full sun. And the Carrick's pennsylvanica does great there as well. Um, but it allows kind of these more delicate plants to come through it and it doesn't overwhelm them. So that's kind of one of the positives of it not being able to outcompete those plants like Carrick's Woody Some of those more delicate plants might have a harder time growing with them. So if you are using Carrick's pennsylvanica in a mixed planting, that might be a better option between Woody eye and pennsylvanica.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. And I love the way Pennsylvanica moves in the wind. I'm always recommending that for kind of that undulating meadow type texture that it has to it.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Let's skip to, you had talked about some of the uses of Carex, describing how you use it in the landscape at Mount Cuba, but how about as a container plant?
1: Oh, yeah, there's, there's plenty of carrots here. Um, actually, most of the top performers and most of the Carricks, um in the trial, I think, could be really great um, container plants, whether they are an accent or, you know, a component of a larger um, container palette, or if they are just that single statement piece um, in a planting or a planter on its own. I think a lot of these plants would do quite well. Um, I think if you were to plant those, if you were to have those containers in full sun, um, just be aware of their water needs. Um, but even if you, if you pick the plant correctly, um, even in a container, um, they'd probably need pretty low maintenance and you'd have a very successful planting.
0: And when we say low maintenance, we're talking, not talking no maintenance, correct?
1: Right. right. I wouldn't say no maintenance. Um, but as far as the carrots go, I mean, a very limited cutback, um, uh, but other than that, we've had very um, little issues with disease. I think in a container, you might have to watch your watering a little bit more than you would with plants just in the ground. Um, but those, those would be my primary um, times of care is kind of that late winter, that late winter cleanup. Um, if you'd like to do that with a lot of these species, you can um, with some of them um, a more... A limited approach would be recommended, like with Cherokeensis and Plantagenia, and then in a container in particular, just kind of keeping an eye on water, um, because they are in kind of a limited vessel there. Um, But very close to no maintenance as far as um, a container planting would go or a garden plant would go.
0: And when you say cutback, are you using hedge trimmers or mowers, or how are you doing your cutbacks?
1: So uh you can do all of the above. You can use pruners. Um the they make um uh, there's little like hand scythes that work really, really well. You can kind of bunch the plant together and make one simple cut with the hand scythe. Um weed whackers work, um mulching mowers work really well. Um and uh, I mean it kind of depends on what you're going for, how tidy you want that space to be. Um, after you've completed. Obviously, the hand methods are a little bit cleaner, um, but they take a little bit more time. But mowing is a totally acceptable and easy way to cut back a lot of carrots all at once. Um, And actually, we did a mowing trial in the fifth year of the evaluation to see how these plants would handle regular mowing. Um, through the growing season.
0: That mowing trial really fascinated me, Sam, um, since I am uh, into ground covers. And so I always thought of Carrick's as a ground cover as just leaving it uh, to its full length, sure. you know, letting it be floppy and letting it, you know, have some movement in it. Um, so doing a regular bi-weekly mowing and treating it like a turf grass was fascinating to me. Do you find a lot of people doing that?
1: Um, no, but I think it it was really interesting to kind of learn that you could. And I think in certain situations, it could make a lot of sense. But as you mentioned, um, there's plenty of carrots that you really don't have to mow and um, you would consider those and for like no mow lawn situations or just, um, non cutback plants that might be combined, that might be in kind of a mixed border. But I think there are certain situations where, um, carrots lawn replacement might make a lot of sense, um, particularly in smaller spaces or areas that might, be difficult for turf grass, say like dry shade or something like that. There are some carrots that would fit that niche really well and they would be very low maintenance alternatives to turf grass while kind of giving you a very similar aesthetic. Um, so that was really fascinating. But one of the things we kind of learned is that a lot of the carrots were tolerant of being mowed um, but only a handful of them kind of gave you that similar kind of turf grass aesthetic.
0: I think the wood sedge again, performed well in that experiment. And again, surprising, but because it's a runner, not a clumper, I think that's, you know, it filled in better and will actually look like a bed of turf grass. And I think in the trial, you had your mower set at four inches, which is a really good thing to note. Um, So if you are going to do this treatment, you don't want to scalp it.
1: Right. Yeah, we had so our uh, our push mowers or our um our mulching mowers that we were using. Um, the highest setting was four inches, um, which was great for a lot of plants. There were a, first, a few species that um, it wasn't quite high enough. Um, so Carex Bromoides is we had, uh, plant that we had mentioned as a top performer before. Um, it does kind of develop these kind of elevated, almost woody crowns. Um, and that were just right at that four-inch mark. Um, so those would often get scalped um, right when we mowed, and they would look bad for a couple of days. They eventually would regrow and recover, but it's one of those can- one of those plants that we kind of determined wasn't a great candidate for mowed lawns just because it would give you that kind of lumpy aesthetic. Um, but a lot of the plants that did really well were those lower-growing species anyways that had finer foliage, and as you mentioned, the rhizomatus plants, I think, really had that kind of added edge over some of the clump formers because they will knit together. They'll continue to spread. You may need less plants um, initially when you're doing that initial planting, so Carex Woodyeye and Carex pennsylvanica, again, would be two great candidates for a mowed lawn replacement and also a great candidate for a no mow lawn replacement as well.
0: You say that one thing that you didn't note in the trials that you might go back or continue on is the walkability or stepability of some of these carex.
1: Yeah, that's the one thing we're really not sure about, you know, how much wear and tear can these plants take? You know, are they, would they be able to kind of live up to what we expect of turf grass? Um, You know, the wear and tear of even just being walked on on a fairly regular basis, that's something we're just not sure of. Um, The only real wear and tear they got was being walked on when we were um, pushing the mower over it. Um, But that's certainly not the same as, you know, being walked on on a regular basis. So that's something that would be fascinating to see. Um, If you do find that Carex is just not handling that foot traffic very well, I think there's some great easy ways around that. Maybe just adding stepping stones in um, and kind of taking some of the pressure off of those Carex plants.
0: Yeah, and I think that the stepping stone would be good, but also a little pathway, you know. Sure. Just cut out of it, or you know, how many of us are playing rugby on our right. homes anyway? <laughs> <Right. Exactly. laughs> so maybe you're only crossing over it once or twice a day. In any case, and just not constant uh, foot traffic, so sure. you might sure. put up with that. All right. So, any other thoughts on Carex before we wrap up?
1: So yeah, the, so it was a really fun trial, as you mentioned, very different to what we've done in the past. Um, but really what we were hoping to inspire people to want to use Carex. We think they're great plants. There really is a Carex for every garden. Um, so as we mentioned, there's Carex for dry shade, there's Carex for wet shade. Um, and because this trial was so species heavy... Um, one of the things we really wanted to drive home is that there's not a bad species. The top performers that we um, that we determined from our trial are the plants that are going to do best in kind of average garden conditions. um so average in our trials um, is about pH of six point five, fairly moisture retentive, fairly rich in nutrients. Um, but if you have soils that are slightly different, um we have some lists for carrots for dry shade or and dry sun and carrots for wet sun and um, and dry sun. So there's, there's, there's some options out there. And there's also a downloadable Excel file on our website um, that will help you kind of generate lists based on what your goals are for your, for your garden. It'll help you pick the best carrots for your situation. Um, So hopefully that's, that's a tool that will, that you'll find useful um, in selecting plants for your home landscape.
0: And we should mention for listeners, that website is mtcubacenter.org and mt for mount obviously and we'll have that link in our show notes and so your next trial is
1: yeah, so our next trial is ironweed or vernonia. Um, i really excited about that. We have 45 different ironweeds in the trial. This will be the last year of data collection. Um, we're kind of looking at these plants from, again, those two perspectives. Of, are these good garden plants for the Mid-Atlantic region? And will these plants be able to support wildlife, um, in this case, pollinators in the Mid-Atlantic region as well in your home landscape? Um, so this will be kind of a more traditional trial where we're looking at both of those the relationships in the garden. Um, you know... In the, in the garden landscape, as well as with wildlife. Um, and it's it's been really fascinating so far. And again, you can come and see these plants. We open April 1st. Um, you can come see these vernonia. They'll probably just be starting to grow, uh, and they're going to have one more season in the ground with us. Um, probably the best time to come see them is late August, early September, um, when they're kind of at their peak bloom.
0: So how can listeners contact you, Sam, if they want to follow up?
1: Yeah, um, but please contact um, either info at org um, or my email address, which is just shodley at mountcubacenter.org. Uh, Mount Cuba is just mtcubacenter.org. i happy to chat about the trials anytime, happy to answer questions on the current trials or plants or evaluations that are ongoing. Um, and please let me know if you're stopping by. I'd love to show you the gardens.
0: Thank you so much, Sam, for sharing about your new Carrick's research report and all those helpful hints.
1: Thank you again so much for having me.
2: This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So
0: Plant Profile Pink Muley Grass Muley grass is a tough native ornamental grass that is topped in late summer and fall with fluffy plumes of cotton candy pink. It is airy and beautiful. You cannot resist brushing your hands through it as you walk by. It grows to about three feet high and wide. Pink muley makes a great border or edge plant. It combines well with the pink flowering forms of echinacea, sedum, autumn joy, and other ornamental grasses. It is native to the southern United States and Mexico. The genus Muhlenbergia contains over 150 species, but only a few are commercially available. It prefers full sun, six to eight hours, but can tolerate part sun. It grows best in well-drained soils, so place it on a slope and amend clay soil well with compost for best results. This grass can tolerate drought conditions, high heat, humidity, and nutrient-poor soils. Pink muley is disease and pest-resistant. The only maintenance needed is to prune it back to about one foot high in late winter or very early spring. There is a white version called white cloud that is equally as stunning and traffic-stopping. Pink muley grass. You can grow that. What's new this week? Well, the primroses I bought last winter at the grocery store are starting to bloom again in my windowsills the same time as the primroses are being put out on sale once again at the grocery store. And of course, I'm going to buy a few more to add to that collection. In the local gardening world, some upcoming events that you might want to attend include the Urban Trees 101 and that is on Monday, January 30th from 7 to 8.30 p.m. hosted by Casey Trees and the City of Hyattsville to discuss the importance of trees in our city spaces. This event is free and you can register it, for it on Eventbrite and find the link at Casey Trees' website. Also happening is March 3rd and 4th, the Galanthus Gala, 2023. It's back and it's a hybrid this year. Um, So it'll be partially online and partially in person at the Downington Friends Meeting House in Downington, PA. And you can again register for that through Eventbrite. Um, Prices range from $29 to $99 depending on if you're attending one lecture or the entire meeting. And don't forget about our Washington Gardener Magazine Seed Exchanges coming up on Saturday, January 28th from 1230 to 4 p.m. at Brookside Gardens in Wheaton, Maryland. You can register for that now at WGSEEDX, that's E-X, 2023.brownpapertickets.com. And we still have plenty of spaces left at the following weekend's Seed Exchange on Saturday, February 4th at the same time 12:30 to 4 p.m. at green screen gardens in alexandria virginia use that same link just toggle down and make sure you're selecting the february 4th date if you're going to attend the virginia one and we also have our garden book club meeting coming up on thursday february 9th from 6 30 to 8 p.m and that is held via zoom and we are discussing The Earth in Her Hands, 75 Extraordinary Women Working in the World of Plants by Jennifer Jewell, and I hope you'll join us for that. Happy gardening!
3: Get low-maintenance alternatives to lawns with Ground Cover Revolution by Kathy Jens. Reducing the lawn is among the biggest trends in homeownership, with an endless stream of homeowners looking for an eco-friendly alternative to a traditional turf grass lawn. In the last few years alone, over 23 million American adults converted part of the lawn to a natural landscape, and now they're looking to do even more. The biggest challenge to adopting this new ideal of the perfect lawn, knowing how and when to replace your turf, and which plants are the best ones for the job. Ground Cover Revolution is here with all the answers you need, and some you didn't even know you needed. Included are 40 in-depth profiles of plants and an incredibly useful chart, giving you all the specifics on each of those choices for quick reference and to make your ground cover selection process even easier. Whether you want to replace the entire lawn or just reduce the amount of land dedicated to turf, Ground Cover Revolution will help you usher in a new and improved idea of what a beautiful lawn should be. Available February 7th, 2023, and you can pre-order it now at amazon.com or bookshop.org. area you'll crave spending time in. you're growing edible plants or beautiful flowers, the 101 amazing growing ideas found in the urban garden will turn your tiny urban yard into a treasure trove of green you'll be proud to share with family and friends. Buy your copy today at your local retail bookseller or order it online now at amazon.com or bookshop.org.
2: Uh, good day everybody it's dr a aka dr alan armitage in the garden with the last word and today's last word is about common sense gardening there are count them at least seven books on gardening for dummies that's how complicated we have made gardening there are books on how to prune hydrangeas, entire books on how to prune roses or clematis, entire books on how to pronounce botanical names. I think it's time that we gave our daughters, our neighbors, our friends a bit of a break on this gardening thing. Let's get some common sense back into gardening. So the last word I want to talk about today is this thing we call pruning, cutting back, or whatever you want to call it, so that your shrub, generally shrubs, woody plants, look better than they did before you did it. Let's put this pruning thing in perspective. Nobody is out in their native habitat of a hydrangea or a viburnum or a spirea or whatever with a pair of secateurs. The deer may do a little pruning or whatever, but nobody's out there doing it. So the plant itself is just fine if you leave it alone. But we have a garden and we want our plants to have more flowers, to have a better form, whatever reason. So we do this thing we call pruning or cutting back. Entire books. Here's my next book on pruning. It is four words Cut back after flowering. That is all you have to know. My daughter does not need to know whether it blooms on new wood or old wood. Who cares what wood if she cuts it back after flowering? There's no schedule or deadline as to whether it's a day after flowering or a week after flowering or even a month after flowering. But don't wait to something that flowers only in the spring to cut it back in the fall, if you want to cut it back at all. If something flowers all year, cut it back all year if you wish, or leave it alone. Cut back after flowering simplifies life. It probably doesn't do anything for the authors who have a 300-page book on pruning, and there are right ways, believe me, I understand that, and there are wrong ways. But for my daughter and for my neighbors, cut back after flowering works. Now that's my last word on common sense gardening, the art of pruning. See you in the garden. This is Dr. A. Until the next time, bye-bye.